are listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support from the Society for Freshwater Science, Arizona State University School of Life Sciences, the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences, and Cornell University's Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department. I'm your host, Erin Larson. I'm here today with Elizabeth Anderson, um, who's at Florida International University, where she's the co-director for the Tropical Conservation Institute and housed in the Department of the Earth and Environment. Thank you for joining me today, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Erin, for having me. Um, I was wondering if you could talk to our listeners a little bit, give us a 30-second overview of your research um, for those who haven't heard about what you work on before. Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, my research explores the ecology and natural, natural history of tropical rivers, and um, the two main geographic areas where I work are the Andean Amazon region of Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia, and then tropical East Africa, mostly Tanzania. And I would say most of the research questions I ask um, relate to kind of pressing conservation issues or management needs. Um, one example would be environmental flow assessments. Um, and so kind of what's happening on those landscapes with rivers really informs a lot of my research. Awesome. And so in light of that um, research topic, how do you think about balancing ecological and social needs in freshwater conservation? Mm-hmm. No, good question. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's sort of like a million dollar question in this river conservation. And I would say, you know, my my academic background was in a pretty solid ecology um, department where there was, you know, I feel like I have a really good, good training in um, sort of understanding ecological aspects of rivers with then a little bit of social science or just general kind of including people into the equation at that point. But as I've progressed in, in my research and in my career, I have really grown to um, – have a, a huge appreciation for the role that social science can play in helping to identify um, conserv- conservation questions that are realistic and that are opportune. Um, and then also any kind of recommendations that um, an ecologist like myself might make about management or conservation of rivers, making sure that those are on trend or on point or actually relevant to people who are um, doing the, the hard work of management or conservation. So for example, um, In uh, some of our work in East Africa, we have worked very closely with the Tanzanian Ministry of Water on environmental flow assessments. So figuring out how much water ecosystems need um, and at what time of year and of what quality. And um, the first few years of that that work were... um, more ecologically focused. Um, I, I guess you could say we had an interdisciplinary team that had ecologists, hydrologists, geomorphologists, hydraulic engineers, and one sort of token social scientist at that point. Um, but at, what we found is that while we might make recommendations, getting them to implementation or getting folks who are in, you know, these these basins to um, support those recommendations or want to help in making sure that they're um, that they're implemented that those kind of things can be really strengthened if you have if you use more social science approaches in as part of your research so uh, another example from that work is that 
um, we ha now have been working with some human geographers to try to understand the strengths and assets of local human communities, so riparian human populations in particular, um, that can be put to, to work for river conservation or for, in this case, implementation of environmental flow recommendations um, or flow management strategies. So what do I mean by strengths and assets? Um, strengths would be, strengths and assets would be something like um, a community that has many sacred areas um, that happen to also be wetlands or lagoons or certain stretches of the river that they recognize as having a special importance to their culture in general or to, you know, their community or even, you know, you would, you, it's really common that people recognize that, you know, um, certain areas are really critical to conserve because that's where water sources are. And so mm -hmm. um, what we've found is that you can kind of already work within those frameworks and use that to kind of um, support river conservation programs. Another example of a strength and asset would be strong kinship networks. So if you're working in a river basin and you find in different villages that you come across Erin and then in <laughs> two villages down you're meeting her twin sister and then, you know, a few villages over you meet her parents and then her uncle. And what you realize is that Erin and her family are talking regularly, maybe mostly about family stuff. But if you are hoping to build more awareness of, um, let's say, um, a particular species of fish and its needs for conservation or the importance of not dumping wastewater or garbage in a river. Like those are already communication networks that are in place that you can kind of help to use. So if you can convince Erin that this is important, Erin can probably convince many of her family members too. Um, or reciprocity networks too um, is something that we see a lot, particularly in rural areas um, where somebody might have a farm and they're, they depend on their friends and neighbors to help them with their harvest um, and they don't pay them, but then there's the expectation that when those friends and neighbors need help, they will be there to, to also work with them. And so you can think about, um, in the case of a river, it's just that um, people are already used to lending a hand for kind of a greater communal good. And you can use those, you know, you can tap into those kind of um, strengths and assets yeah. to, uh, and put them to use for conservation. So I would say um, where 10 or 15 years ago um, with my research, when I was thinking of, of projects or when I would work on things that had kind of conservation recommendations as an outcome, I would write those in my papers or maybe right. even make a policy brief or some sort of, uh, um, you know, maybe a simpler explanation of the, those recommendations. But at no point was I actually thinking on how they could be streamlined or interwoven into what people were already working on. Nor did I typically go and talk to um, riparian human communities before I started my projects. And so now I'm seeing that, you know, they can really help to um, inform research questions in a way if, if that makes them, um, you know, whatever kind of conservation recommendations you have later on might have more of a chance of being implemented or accepted if you're working really closely with, with people. Yeah, so would you say that in terms of thinking about, like, best practices for working with 
large groups of these types of diverse stakeholders that getting people involved at sort of the beginning of the process is a really important thing to consider for scientists. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, another example from um, Tanzania is when I was a postdoc, I got this invitation um, to go and be kind of like a technical advisor to the Ministry of Water for um, putting together some environmental flow assessment studies for certain rivers. Um, and <clears throat> actually, I shouldn't say it like that. I got an, an, an invitation to help with some environmental flow assessment studies for a couple of rivers. And I could have just gone and done that on my own and collected some data or um, talked to other people and gotten data and then come back to the U.S. and made my model and come mm -hmm. up with my recommendations and then sent them back, send them back to that country. Um, but when I went there and I, I first met with the Tanzanian Ministry of Water, who has sort of the, the, the legal authority and the, the um, responsibility for this kind of work, you know, they asked me very clearly, like, well, so why, we're, thank you for coming to our country. Yeah. They were very polite and very welcoming. But we're, we're puzzled by why you're trying to do our job for us. <laughs> and so, you know, and then someone, yeah. they asked me very, you know, um, earnestly, are, is somebody paying you to do our job? Because they're paying <laughs> us too. And so, I think, I mean, for me, that was one of these moments that I was, I was talking about it 10 years later. It was very formative where I thought, wow, this, there's a huge opportunity that we're wasting to actually, um, for myself as a professional, but also just in general for um, under doing more environmental flow assessment for Tanzanian rivers, if we don't try to work together on this. Because you know, if whatever recommendations I come up with, even if they're um, scientifically super cutting edge, they're only as good for the rivers actually being managed um, sustainably as they are implemented. And so, um, you know, what, what I realized it was that um, there was a lot of local interest from the Tanzanian Ministry of Water to build capacity in country on environmental flow assessments, um, on just river science in general. There were already many scientists that were working on this, on kind of aspects that were related to environmental flow assessment, but not in a coordinated way. So there was a chance to like, use this initiative to bring people together in kind of what we would call research coordination networks mm -hmm. here to do something like there, that there. And, um, <clears throat> you know, now we've had this, let's say, eight or nine years of implementation on one particular river and seen many iterations as well where we've gone back and, and revised our initial estimates based on additional data. But just seeing how that process now has some sustainability um, and has, you know, they've used the, the recommendations to make decisions about water allocation for irrigated um, biofuels plantations mm -hmm. with sugarcane and decided like, okay, this isn't a wise, this, this would compromise the ecosystem needs for water based on this assessment. So, um, you know, we, we need to consider that in the permitting process. And I don't think that that would have happened if I had just done this study kind of in without the strong collaboration of the, the Tanzanian Ministry of Water. Yeah, it seems like collaboration is a really important theme here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is, too. Um, and so then the other thing that's happened now is that, you know, other there's momentum in Tanzania for um, just increasing the amount of data that's available and just general scientific understanding of rivers. Mm -hmm. And now there's a community of local 
scientists and now they're students and those students are finishing their doctorates and their students all kind of making a critical mass of people that, that are working on rivers in a way that 10 years ago, you know, wasn't there. And so I find that really exciting. Yeah. Um, And I think it's a good way. I think just part of it is that there's lots of enthusiasm in Tanzania and recognition of the importance of, of river ecosystems and the need to kind of manage them well. But also it's just like the way that um, small collaborations can start to build and turn and sort of snowball into these really big networks around particular topics. Yeah, and that seems like a really powerful way to think about researching and tackling complex problems like flow ecology relationships and subsequent river management um, in these types of data-scarce regions. Mm -hmm. And so how do you think about when you're thinking about how to prioritize research needs in data-scarce regions? What do you think about being really high-priority types of projects and types of data to collect versus working with some existing data when it does exist and... Yeah, yeah, I know that's a hard question. That's a really hard question. Um, you can probably tell. Looking um, I think it really depends on the region yeah. and on what you know what you want to know. Mm-hmm. So if you're just going for basic ecological science um, or understanding of rivers, you know you. I think that there's there's lots of things that you can do, um, you know, as a scientist or to encourage other scientists to kind of just generate new. Um, baseline information about rivers, and I, I, you know, I think that that's that's great. If you're looking at at a region, which is the case in a lot of the tropics, that um, um, is, let's say, could become a new protected area, mm-hmm. um, and you, there's never been collections of fishes or um, aquatic biodiversity surveys or anything in there, then that might be a moment to. Um, do kind of like a rapid inventory, not try to, to make an, an exhaustive list of all the species, but look for things that make that area um, unique. Mm-hmm. Where are the endemic species? Where are the rare species? How is it different from other protected areas in that same region? So that would give, those things can all like kind of, that would be more of like a conservation <laughs> question, right? Or a conservation motivation. What would make that area different from other places and um, therefore, like, really important for some kind of protected status. Um, so you're, you're getting basic information, again, in an area that is very data-scarce, but you're doing it in a way that tries to um, kind of create a case that's really strong for its conservation. Um, in places where, you know, I'm doing a lot of work in the Andean Amazon region right now, and that's a, that's a region that's being rapidly transformed in many ways, and one of those ways is with new infrastructure development, particularly dams. And so that's also a region that um, people say there, you know, there's a lot still left to learn. There's new species of fish being described mm-hmm. every week. Or yeah, what's the number from that, that region? Right now? It's something like the number of it's, it's, fish species in the neotropics. Yeah. Skyrocket. Yeah, the number of, of fish species in the neotropics were close to 6,000 species that have been described now, which is like 40% of the global um, total of, of freshwater fish species. And, um, you know, we haven't reached an asymptote. So, we like, in the past 10 years, we've described around 1,000 species. That's amazing. In my lifetime, we've described half of what we know in the neotropics in terms of, of freshwater fishes, which is pretty exciting, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the 
so that's like a real, I would say that's like a real um, kind of exciting frontier for basic axiological research. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, many of these new studies are being done by South American scientists. That's amazing. And that's awesome. yeah, and I think that is something that um, sometimes um, there's a whole list of journals out of many South American countries that are in Portuguese or in Spanish and have really high quality information and, high, and really done by wonderful scientists, but that doesn't always make it into kind of the literature that we're used to seeing here in the United States mm -hmm. or in Europe. And so one of the, I guess going back to what we talked about originally with um, trying to kind of understand what some of the implications of rapid hydropower development are in that region, you know, right now, if we, we can, you know, there's obviously a lot of interest in doing um, primary data collection, but there's a lot of information that's already out there that could be synthesized or analyzed in new ways um, to say something about regional patterns of distribution of different fish species um, or patterns of, of, of fish species distribution along elevational gradients and thinking about those on an individual gradient or basin basis or on a regional scale. And you find kind of different things when you look at, at those data in different ways. And um, I, like in a, in a situation where you have rapid transformation, you know, I would say like, getting information that's already available and consolidating it or synthesizing it and then asking questions with that existing data um, is a good way to kind of build awareness quickly um, of the conservation importance or the biodiversity importance of many of these rivers. So in that, in that particular case, I think it's like two-pronged approach. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to sort of make the case this place <clears throat> should be preserved and mm -hmm. then, you know, given sort of this rapid biodiversity assessment yeah. that's been done in historically or some sort of pre-existing data and then to have the opportunity once that has some sort of conserved status to then go more in depth and study it potentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, also the value of... Um, including students and others in that research, um, just, you know, right now there's, there's a lot of momentum. People are excited about rivers and um, for, for, for reasons that relate to just their, their biodiversity, but also just their potential for development in the region. And so, you know, while many people are talking about this proliferation of hydropower dams in the Andean Amazon region as something very scary for rivers and that could have major implications. You know, I try to look at the positive of it is that three, four years ago, five years ago, it was tough to get people excited about rivers in that region. And mm -hmm. I would give talks about our work and people would say, Oh, that's really great. Like, what's it like to travel? And now that this has become, this has been, you know, identified as one of the top 15 global conservation concerns. Everybody wants to talk about <laughs> Indian Amazon rivers. Yeah. And so when I talk about like fish diversity, like there's a lot more interest because of what's happening and, and that, you know, people are more aware of it. So, you know, in the same sense that this is a, um, you know, these infrastructure development could transform a lot of these rivers. It's also started a dialogue that, uh, um, 
has opened a, a much larger space for talking about rivers and river biodiversity than I've seen in my career previously for this region. Yeah, that's so exciting. As yeah. someone who's so, also working in that region, that yeah. makes me really happy. And, it's, and you can see that it's, it's really positive in, in that sense and that it's it's like a catalyst for more scientific research. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I guess one other thing, just when you, we were talking about strengths and assets and understanding riparian human communities and their strengths and assets for conservation, you know, that's the way that um, at least my approach in more social science aspects of my research has been with that in mind. I'm not discounting the importance of understanding threats, Mm -hmm. but I think that um, sometimes we get bogged down in just trying to understand all of the levels of threat of a particular situation, and we miss the sort of positive opportunities um, that uh, for conservation that already exists. And so this whole idea of understanding and mapping out strengths and assets is like a kind of an approach of optimism and just being thinking like, okay, what's the op- opportunity here for yeah. conservation? Yes, these threats exist, but there are also these, these great um, opportunities and things that people are already doing that can be put to work for conservation. I like that, the sunny side of conservation. The sunny side, <laughs> yeah. One thing I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about before we wrap up uh-huh. um, is there's you've written a bit about um, water security as a management tool in freshwater systems. And that mm-hmm. might not be something – that's not something that I know I'm not super familiar with and some mm-hmm. of our listeners might not be super familiar with. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about what that is, how, what it entails, what it looks like when it's implemented. Sure, sure. Actually, you know, it's interesting that, that um, you say that water security isn't a topic you're familiar with because if we had been having this this conversation two years ago, I would also have said that. <laughs> um, but it's – so water security is actually a concept that's used – um, in a lot of different disciplines now, I came across it in information that's put together by the United Nations and more of the kind of global development groups, groups um, where they're thinking about water security as a concept that relates to um, people having enough water now and into the future to satisfy their basic needs, um, to satisfy their agricultural needs, if that's the case, or just for their kind of general well-being. But they also recognize the importance of water security for ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So ecosystems also having enough water um, for, you know, just general ecosystem health, if you want to use a kind of basic Very term. term yeah. But just, you know, having... Um, Recognizing that that key piece too, others will also say that you know water water security means that um, you know people and ecosystems have the access to cer- sufficient quality and quantity of water at the right time in a climate of peace and stability. Hmm. And so that's also another component that that goes into that definition. If you look on the United Nations um, in their information online, you can find their official definition. And so when when I read this, I started thinking about like, this is actually like kind of an interesting concept that um, encompasses social and ecological and political and even economic dimensions of water in a concise way. Um, and then I, I have a, a colleague that I'm working with now who is trained as a geographer. Um, a human geographer, and I've, that's a concept that they talk about a lot. And so for her, this the concept of water security was mostly focused on people having access to water in a climate of peace and stability, but also, you know, with quali- just um, healthy ecosystems and like, you know, not having access to water doesn't mean living alongside a super contaminated river. 
And so I've learned a lot from that world, too, of about this concept and the way you would apply it. Um, I would say that it, the other thing I find is that um, the topic seemed, or this term makes sense to people in other disciplines as well. Mm-hmm. You know, when I talk about the ecological flow needs, that for me as an ecologist, I understand exactly what I mean. And <laughs> someone from political science might not totally get that but when i say well water security for ecosystems then they then i you know it's like i'm seeing it as a bridging concept between a lot of disciplines as well yeah that's cool to think about having those types it's just funny how it seems like semantics but it actually is Mm -hmm. facilitating conversations around Mm -hmm. different types of disciplines which Mm -hmm. is really cool Mm -hmm. and so at my university florida international university um we have a lot of people that work on water issues and Mm -hmm. i mean we're right next to the Everglades and um, certainly water issues and water management is, is really important in that landscape. And we have folks that are, we have this, um, we've had a forum for discussion on this topic of water security and what it means to me as an ecologist, to someone who's a geographer, to a political scientist, to an economist. And, um, you know, it's been a really rich discussion that I, I would say that each one of us has walked away from those with kind of new perspectives on our own work from from that kind of sharing. That's awesome. Yeah, that's been cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us today, Elizabeth. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks again. Yeah, no problem. You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast. Brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. For more info on this speaker, the Making Waves podcast, or the Society in general, please visit us on the web at the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. Tune in next time for another fresh idea in freshwater science.